Underpowered Hour. On this week's show, Liza's pinch hitting for me as she and Ike interview Chris Georgica, Steve Cooper, and very special guest Nick Dibbleby all about their thrilling G4 Challenge recreation trip. And now, without delay, here's the show. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Steve Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about our cars and what we're working on at thebarriscollection.com or follow us on Instagram at thebarriscollection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thank you to everyone joining us today. I'm the bad directions to Liza's impeccable bearings. I am the aimless wanderer of podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online on Facebook, Instagram at Pangolin 4x4. Let's get started. All right, Ike. Well, I'm not Steve, in case people didn't notice. What? I no know. one told me. Shocking. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm ecstatic. I'm so excited to hear about uh, what's happened, your latest trip, what's going on. Yeah. Um, We've all had be great. a lot of adventures lately. You guys were oh in gosh. Australia and I was in Utah and uh, Stephen is busy working and not having very much Land Rover fun, but that'll change. He'll he'll have Land Rover fun soon. We'll see. <laughs> but yeah, it's been it's been a crazy spring for everybody. It's been it's been pretty busy trying to keep on top of everything uh, with work and also uh, keep on top of everything travel related. So uh, this is going to be great. We're going to have uh, Chris and Steve and hopefully Nick join us for today's episode to talk yeah. about the G4 Challenge recreation. Yeah. And uh, you participated in that, right? I did. I did. I um I got to be kind of a support driver slash media team following these uh, orange Range Rovers through the desert last month. And it was super, super cool. And, and of course, if, you know, any of the listeners were paying any attention to our social media last month, they definitely got a taste of it. So I'm excited to kind of fill people in on on all of the adventures we had. It was pretty epic. It was beautiful. Yeah, when you look at uh, when you look at the the imager like gallery, it's just like orange. Orange. My whole orange. Instagram, my personal Instagram, is so much orange. It's these orange. Days. Like I'm the the backgrounds are orange. The red rocks right and then it. like the cars are orange. It's just so much orange. It was really cool. Like the car, these five orange Land Rovers driving through the Utah desert, and we just like fit right in. It was great. Well, this is going to be great, uh, and we'll get into that in a minute, but. Yep. Um, I'm told that uh, Tata, the chairman of Tata, is flying to the UK to finalize a deal for the manufacturing of batteries for JLR vehicles. I read that. I read that. Really interesting. Yeah. So there's going to be a plant built in the UK to manufacture batteries for those cars. You know, if the supply chain woes of 2020 through 2023 taught them anything, it's uh, probably like get some of that stuff closer to home and maybe you can keep making cars. I mean, it's not chips, but it's batteries. And that's yeah, important. I'm not I'm not sure uh, exactly the motivation for building the battery plant in the UK, but I know the alternative was to build it in uh, mainland Europe. And so in Spain, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tata was like, oh, well, we'll just build it in Spain. We'll just build it so, there. We talked about it on an earlier episode, but apparently it's like actually happening now. That's interesting. And uh, they're trying to electrify the entire Land Rover range uh, by what 2030? Something and, like uh, that, yeah. And I like completely, I, completely electric. And I am not clear on like what European standards are like and how much the European standards are pushing them to do metric. that. Versus, well, yes, but versus, <laughs> like, I know in North America, like California is trying to lead the charge right now in electrifying, right. you know, uh, major manufacturers have to move to electric vehicles sooner mm-hmm. rather than later. And, and you know, I, I'm not clear on how much of Land Rover's, you know, decision to go in that direction is directed by a North American market and how much is directed by a European or rest of the world market. I mean, it seems like they're parallel pressures. Uh, I don't know that those are competing pressures. I think yeah, both Europe and California true. are both pushing for electrification of, of vehicles in general. But um, specifically, yeah. they're trying to prepare themselves for, for doing that. Yeah. Never mind the infrastructure. Whatever. No. It's fine. Yeah. Kick that fine. can down the road. It'll be fine. So 
Uh, I'm curious to see how that all pans out, uh, whether there'll be an international incident related to uh, the battery deal. But uh, it sounds like it's all it's all happening, going smoothly. Yeah, lots to keep an eye on with Land Rover these days. They they've got a lot of uh, a lot of stuff happening. I don't know about you, but I have seen a huge uptick in the number of positive reviews about Defenders out there. Lots of reviews that have crossed my path list the Defender as like the number one SUV that you want to own right now. I saw like no fewer than four articles last Whoa. week, just last week, talking That's a about lot. how the... De- I know. That's in the motoring press? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of, you know, like top five SUVs you want to own. And Defender keeps making it to the top of the list. So people really like the Defender. I will say, I think as there's a, a lot new of Defender like owner, yeah. I absolutely love mine. I have an honest review coming out of my Land Rover that I'm going to put on our YouTube channel soon. That'd be cool. And uh, yeah, and and I freaking love mine. I probably, you know, I've had mine almost a year. And mm-hmm. I say mine, it's not Stevens. Let's be honest. I drive it every single day. I, I believe this. His. I believe this. But I've had it almost a year. Mm-hmm. And we've taken it camping. We've taken it off-roading. Jenna and I have taken it out to Glamis and the sand dunes. I drove it all across Utah. I did some off-road trails in Moab. Like, I am driving the ever-loving crap out of this Defender, and I absolutely adore it. It's uh, it's pretty impressive, that car. You uh, have had fewer problems with that than the Discovery 5, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My you Discovery a- 5, I had a leaky windshield. I had some electrical issues. I had, um, it was a, it was a good one. I love that Discovery 5. I kind of mm. wish I hadn't sold it because it was a diesel. Mm, it was oh, yeah, so I nice. I forgot that it was a diesel. It was a diesel. It was a new Discovery 5 diesel. It was so nice. I shouldn't That's have sold it. Cool. But anyways, you live, you learn. But speaking of my new Defender and taking it off-road, your lovely counterpart and myself are going to do another rebel training next week. I heard about that. I heard about that. Now uh, tell us where that's going to happen. We're going up to Ridgecrest, which is. No, don't uh, be specific because you don't want to, you want, you don't want like crowds of adoring fans out there getting in your way. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going out to Ridgecrest, California, which is two hours from my house. Really, really easy. So um, Jenna is going to fly in next week and then we're going to drive up there and we're doing it's two days of navigation training, one day Mm -hmm. of classroom, one day of navigation training in the car um, put on by the rebel. And then the third day, we're really excited about this. The third day is rebel trials. They're going to treat it like a mock stage rally day. So they're going to give us our checkpoints. They're going to give us our maps, have a tracker in the car with us, I think, and send us out to pretend like it is the first day of the rally and go out there and practice collecting our checkpoints. So Jenna and I are in planning mode right now to get the car ready and organized and think of all the new places we need things. Cause we're going to run my new defender for this training. Oh, okay. Right mm-hmm. on. We're not going to run the old one. We're going to run the new one for this training. And, uh, um, well, I'm curious to see how that, uh, the, the report on that, uh, now you have to, if you were to use that vehicle in the actual event, you'd have to disable the navigation, correct? Yes, we absolutely would. We don't have to worry about it for this training, but yes, we absolutely would. Are you, now, are you feeling good about this training? Are you are these skills that you feel like you have down pat, or you feel like you need to to refresh? I'm excited about it because the hardest thing to recreate about the rebel when we're out there training by ourselves is they they spend a lot of time on their maps. They spend a lot of time on the information that they provide us. They're very, mm-hmm. very specific and very purposeful in what information they give us. And it's very hard to replicate what we call... Um, like rally pace, the the speed at which you need to make decisions and keep jamming down the road so that you don't run out of time at the end of the day. So I'm really excited that we get the opportunity to kind of replicate a day on the rally and so just get a little back bit into of, that mode halfway through the year, you know. Get apply back a little that, pressure. Yeah, apply a little pressure and just be in that moment where like energy is high. And so, so yeah, so that's going to be really fun. I'm excited to go out there and do that. Well, I will miss Jenna while she's gone, but I'm excited to hear the report on uh, how that I goes. will take very good care of her. Right on. Well, let's uh, get into this interview about the G4 Challenge. Fantastic. Yeah, let's do it. All right. All right. We're here with uh, Chris, Steve, Nick, and Liza, and myself, of course, and we're going to talk about the G4 Challenge recreation that you guys did. 
You guys drove from Vegas to Moab, Utah on back roads with uh, G4 edition vehicles. And this is a recreation of an event that happened about 20 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, Nick especially was responsible not only for photographing the original event, but uh, also detailing the route for this event. Yeah. And and actually, when um, it should be said that it was 20 years pretty much to the day, I think, that you were there, right? Is Is that correct? Absolutely. It was, yeah. We, we, we pulled into Moab on April 25th, which was the first day that the original crew arrived there. So uh, maybe you guys can tell our listeners a little bit about uh, you yourselves and uh, your background with this event. Can we start with Chris? Thanks, Mike. Glad to be on, on the program. I listen to a number of your episodes and enjoy it. I uh, work as a public relations executive in Minnesota, but spend quite a bit of time in Arizona. My son and I have been doing off-roading for a number of years. Uh, between my wife, my son, and I, we have 10 Land Rovers in our Whoa. collection. Um, and enjoy a lot of other vehicles besides. And with respect to this event, my son uh, first got uh, his 2003, actually 2002, G4 Range Rover back in 2012. Um, oh, wow. And then we picked up another one Four years ago, I met Steve at the Overland Expo. I think Steve was maybe 2016, 2017, and yeah, uh, was delighted to hear Steve's idea, which he'll expound on, I'm sure, in just a moment, to to do this uh, recreation of Stage 4 of the 2003 uh, G4 Challenge. Now, Liza was telling me you did this event uh, with your family. Uh, your son and your wife also came along. Is that right? Yeah, my, my son and I each drove our respective uh, G4 Range Rovers, and uh, my wife, uh, despite her earlier thinking that she didn't want to spend hour after hour in a 20-year-old Land Rover, uh, decided to come with, and it was a wonderful experience for us. And Did and she, had did great she have time. a good time, ultimately? She, she did, and especially uh, enjoyed uh, getting to know Steve's wife, Dixie. Right on. Very cool. Very cool. Dixie All right. and Sue were hilarious. They kept <laughs> Abigail and I in stitches many, many times throughout the trip. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I um, I grew up in, in England, in the north, in Leeds. I moved to London and finally moved to L.A. in 84. I do IT work now. Right on. Uh, but I've always uh, been a, a fan of the Land Rover. We, I grew up around them in, in the Yorkshire Dales. And it wasn't until 2000 that I really got back into um, ownership. So I bought a 93 long wheelbase, which I still have. And oh, then, awesome. Those are those are great cars. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I keep it at the at a cabin in Big Bear Lake now, just out of the sun since I had it repainted. And I, I bought my 2003 G4 in 2014. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'd always had the idea of, of doing this. I joined the owners club and I saw this cool, very vague map of the route. <laughs> and I, thought, I, I, I looked at it over the years and thought, I wonder where they actually went. I reached out in January this year. And I knew Alex from, from Overland Expo and to my surprise, he said, oh, we have two of those now. So, uh, and he said, if, if we time it right, my dad can drive the other one. And so and I, I knew Luke from the, the the other guy that came with us with the with the fourth G4 from the uh, SoCal Rover Club. So I, I like overnight had four of the original eight vehicles on board. Uh, so I knew, I knew it was going to happen at that point. That was uh, mid January. That's, that's a pretty good turnout after you know twenty years. Twenty right? years, and well, you've yeah. had this car for a decade, and you're still enthusiastic yeah. about it. Clearly, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's the best vehicle I've had. Uh, ever i would say it's wow um, i would say it's uh for me it's amazing that those when i saw the first set of photographs of the uh of the range rovers all lined up at the at the retailer i couldn't believe it i mean they are they are absolutely pristine aren't they i mean they look they look fantastic those cars and they're they're 20 yeah, years if, old, if so. you don't look too close but yeah it was only on my phone right so yeah, yeah. I no. will say that all four of those of you who yeah. owned the the G4s, you guys all were such great representations of what it is to be, um, you know, a true Land Rover enthusiast to really, really care about a piece of Land Rover history. And and Nick, you're kind of the nexus. You're kind of the origination of this because you participated not only in the original event, but uh, also helped with some of the logistics on the the recreation. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, um, Steve's absolutely right when he says the map 
was very vague. And I think that map was probably produced before the event was actually finalized. So at the time it was done, it, I don't think they actually fully knew what the route was bit was, was going to be. So there was a team of people um, out there. And I don't know if you recall, but the G4 challenge in 2003 was very much a, a journey. And along that journey, you had uh, places to visit. So there were there were locations all along that, that the team members could do mountain biking, kayaking, climbing, orienteering, abseiling, various different activities. And obviously that area is fantastic for doing all those things. Anyway, so every day there were these uh, fixed campsites and also these locations. Um, and obviously they had to be found. So the team, uh, there was probably a team of about sort of seven or eight guys and girls that went out and basically found these locations, sought the, the relevant permissions and got it all done. And then once that had been done, they designed the route, um, and uh, and there it was. So um, and of course you've got to bear in mind that that was uh, the the route um, which was from uh, Vegas to Moab was stage four. It was it was the the fourth of, of four weeks basically. So on that trip in two thousand and three, we'd already done um, New York. So we started in Manhattan and then went up to the Catskill Mountains. And that was in Freelanders, right? New York was Freelanders. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then. Um, Stage two was in South Africa along the garden route from Cape Town to a place called Neisner. And then uh, stage three was uh, in Australia. So we flew from South Africa to Australia, and that was in the Western Australian outback, finishing at a place called Port Headland. And then we flew to Sydney uh, and did a couple of days in Sydney uh, on, a, on an urban off-road course, and then finally flew to Vegas for the last stage. So um, it was a massive undertaking. Yeah, it was so Nick, when we were out there, Chris and I talked about this a couple of times, um, where we were trying to fit as many things as we could into our day and thinking to ourselves, my God, how did they do all of this? Like, this was stage four. So A, you guys must have been absolutely exhausted by the time you got to the fourth stage with all that world traveling and all of that adventuring that you guys had been doing. yeah. Yeah. And then by the time you got to stage four and like we drove got out and hiked, took some nice photos, got back in the car, kept driving. You guys like got on bikes and kayaks and stuff like that. How did you fit it all in in a day? Like we couldn't believe how much ground you covered and how many activities you all did. Yeah, there was a lot there was a lot going on for sure. I mean, it was um if I remember rightly, we had um the teams couldn't leave until a certain time in the day. So I think it was probably eight o'clock. I think mm -hmm. it was oh maybe seven. It could have been earlier. Um, and then they had to be back in camp an hour, so half an hour after sunset. So there was like a there was like a curfew that you couldn't drive in in the dark, basically. So they had to plan their their day looking at the route. And obviously, as you probably saw from the maps, the there were these different locations all over the the route, and you couldn't physically do all of them. So the idea was you had to then strategize and work out which were the best ones to do. And there was an extra thing in the mix as well. I mean, it was quite a complicated competition when you think about it. Yeah. Extra thing in the mix that if you were the first team to arrive at a location, you scored maximum points. Um, oh, so you didn't necessarily want to follow another team. You kind of wanted to blaze your own trail. If you drove the furthest one and then were the first to get there, you might get more points than if you'd done one that was closer so that you were Got the it. fourth or fifth team. So there was a lot of strategy there, plus... The other thing, of course, you had to bear in mind that some of the, you had to try and guess or have an idea of what the competition would entail. So if it was like a half an hour run or a, a quick abseil down a rock, that was a lot quicker than doing a, you know, a two hour bike ride. So there was lots of things like that, that the teams had to, um, to analyze and work out and drive there. So you had driving challenges and physical challenges or it was exactly. just, okay, gotcha, gotcha. And the... Uh, for those of the, our listeners that don't know, the tell us about the G4 moniker. What does that stand for? Uh, okay, so G4 originally was called the G4s challenge. So G4s. Uh, okay, I'm just going to reach down and my people that are actually watching on uh, on online. So this is the original um, folder that was done in 2002. So it was called the G4s challenge. That's which, out of the archive. That is out of the archive. I've dusted it off, as, as is my shirt. Can you see my <laughs> original? Love it. Amazing. Amazing. I love it. Shirt. Um, anyway, that's, um, yeah, that, that was called the, the G4s because it was the global fours. 
So the idea being global, that's it. Four countries, four time zones, four wheel drive. Uh, what else was it? Four something else. Anyway, basically, it was the idea was four by four. You see, so sure, the best four by four by far. So G four. Well, I was talking a little bit about this with Liza. So you you did uh, South Africa, right? Correct. And Australia. Yes. So and actually, the United States. It wasn't four continents, was it? It must have been four time zones. Four times. There you go. Okay. We did four constants on the next one. On the and next one. Each stage featured a different Land Rover vehicle to be used by the competitor. Correct. Correct. Freelander, Discovery, Range Rover, Defender. Exactly. So Freelander was the first vehicle used on the first stage. Second vehicle was Defender. Third vehicle was Range Rover. That was in um, in Australia. And then in the Western US, it was the Discovery 2. So um, Oh, Discovery 2. Okay. Discovery 2 was the... Yeah. And in fact, so... Um, the way it worked, they had two, the fleet that was in the US was actually shipped from the East Coast to the West Coast while we were in Australia and um, uh, and South Africa. So those cars were used twice. They were used obviously on the East Coast side and then on the West Coast. Um, and we had, so I had a Discovery 2 as my support vehicle in the first one. And then uh, I feel very close to G4 Freelanders because it was my support vehicle uh, on stage four, so um, <laughs> you we were, know my feelings about G four Freelander. Airing after uh, Discovery twos in our in our little. Uh, I know where a G four Freelander could be purchased. A G four edition Freelander <laughs> may or may not run. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so how many vehicles are approximately? And maybe you don't know how many vehicles did they make for the event? I think it was. It must have been around about a hundred. I think a hundred. That's quite a few vehicles. Yeah. A lot of- yeah, maybe even more than that because it's a little was, bit more. Yeah, I, I yeah. believe 145 total. Oh, wow. And that was in 2003, was it? Yeah. yeah. I got like a, and I got a, on the uh, G4 Owners Club website, which Steve referenced a few minutes ago. I think there is a pretty detailed breakdown of the number of each vehicle type that was used uh, in the 2003 G4 Challenge, if I'm and not so mistaken. There's a pretty active owners group with these, these cars in the UK, yes. In the UK. And is there a registry? Sure, as a registry per se, but I think it's. I mean, their cars appear out of the woodwork. I mean, I must. Say, I was surprised that mm-hmm. to see there was the Range Rovers still in existence in the U.S. I mean, the um, I'm not sure what happened to the vehicles. I think a lot came back to the U.K. Uh, so, for example, there was um, on the U.S. leg, there was one Defender that was the ambulance, uh, and that I know for sure that actually came over and then was exported straight back out because it was on a temporary import license, um, mm-hmm. being a 2003 car in 2003, which obviously you couldn't, you couldn't can't import. do. No, can't do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was very, very heartened to see that the the vehicles are still very much in use with you guys. You know, it was, now it was nice. I can't remember, but I, I know on our last night when we had our final dinner, it was either Steve or Chris. One of the two of you told me about the journey that your cars had to take after the G four was done. Didn't they have to go back to the UK to be prepped and re-stickered and re-decaled and then sent back into the US? One yeah, of you told me about that. I think it was. I think I was telling you that, and that's the story. I I think I got from Jerome was that all the vehicles were shipped back to the UK because none of them were had been officially exported or imported, um, and they changed all the decals. They took off those big blue stripes and, and the map decals and shipped them back to the US. At least the left-hand drive uh, Range Rovers, and they were sold at the dealerships, and and they had different decals at the time. That's a pretty elaborate process to, to ship them here, do the event, ship them back, take the decals off, ship them back again. Yeah, and there was only eight left-hand drive, seven remain. There's the four that did our trip. Uh, one is in Colorado. I desperately tried to get a hold of him to do the trip, but I could not find the owner. Two in Florida, and then the one that was uh, looks like it was destroyed by a tree. I have a picture of it folded in half. So It's was- a very impressive picture, Steve. It is. Survived the event, but didn't uh, didn't survive the tree. Act of God, just cut it in half. So, right. uh, how are these vehicles different than a standard production vehicle? Well, aside from the the orange paint, which I think was unique to these vehicles, they were originally equipped with full skid plates. The Range Rovers in the U.S. did not have the winch. I think the the thirty or so that were in Australia had the winch bumpers because they were actually used as event vehicles. 
um, all participant vehicles. The the four in the U.S. were press vehicles, so they never had the winch. Uh, they all had the roof rack and ladder and some lights. But aside from that, they're basically stock. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that they were quite keen to promote at the time was to say that you know these are vehicles that you can essentially buy from the the showroom, put a set of off road tires on roof rack. Um, obviously, in the case of the vehicles that went to Australia, the um, uh, the winch went on. But apart from that, all the transmission, everything else was uh, was absolutely as you buy from the showroom. Yeah. And of course, Nick, I mean, that was a time when the L322, the third generation Range Rover had just been released the year absolutely. before. right? Yeah. And so this was this is sort of a early test, and the public relations value for Land Rover was considerable to show off the the newest um, Range Rover uh, being able to take on Northwestern Australia and then used as support vehicles as our our vehicles were. Uh, Correct. The, yeah. The two U.S. stages. I mean, very much so. That was again, you got to cast your mind back. It was you know that was very much a, the new Range Rover at the time, and it was the first time that it was seen off road. So it was uh, it was it was quite uh, yeah, it's quite something. I mean, but- I think we can all safely say that that this event definitely showed off the Range Rover. And that the Range Rover fared significantly better than the Freelander over the years. So, but I think your vehicle, as well as being vehicles that were used for the media on the event, I think they also did the um, national selections as well. So there was a, a national selections uh, that was held in in um, Henderson in Nevada, just outside Vegas, and that was, I think, if my memory serves me right, sort of back end of two thousand and two. So I, I reached out to the club for information on on my VIN, and they, they told me that my Range Rover was shipped over in October of 2002, and it was used for the North American and Canadian selections. So it was it was the one that you see in the pictures that has the 131 on the windshield. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. As far as I know, my, mine was the first one over over here. I'll yeah. send you some pictures then, Steve, because I was at that as well. I was about 20 years old when the original event, you know, happened. And, uh, you know, to me, there were, had been a little bit of a gap from the end of the Camel Trophy. And it felt like this was sort of at least a spiritual successor to that uh, in the minds of the public. You know, I think uh, Land Rover was trying to distance themselves from the Camel brand or vice versa, you know, with all the anti-smoking stuff that was coming out and so there was a this feeling among the public that they wanted to they wanted some event to sort of fill that gap and it was also sort of you know extreme sports were popular and so they they felt like oh we'll incorporate these new vehicles with extreme sports and we'll have an event that has that sort of feel to it because the last camel trophies were kind of like that too they were almost less about the vehicles and more about the the Challenges. biking and kayaking and, you know, that sort of thing. At least that was, you know, as an outsider, mm-hmm. you know, who, who didn't really know a lot about the event, that was sort of how I perceived it at the time. Would you say that's accurate or what would you say? 100% in my view, yeah. yeah. And then I think to, to piggyback on that, I think, you know, Trek is now like the sort of karmic grandson or granddaughter of those events, right? Trek clearly borrowed a lot from the G4, which clearly borrowed some of its inspiration from Camel Trophy. So you can see, you know, a direct line of progression through these events. Um, and as we discovered when we lined up my Trek Defender right alongside these Range Rovers, they clearly chose the same paint color because my car matched theirs almost identically in terms of the shade of orange. And that, and that Tangier's orange is actually an amazing color as well in terms of, you know, photographs really well oh. in, in sort of, obviously, I mean, the, the locations where you were, obviously the, the background's very orange as well, isn't it? So I mean, it's, it's fantastic in that respect. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. we were certainly eye-catching. Five Tangier's orange Land Rovers driving through southern Utah. Every time we stopped, everybody would get the, so... So what, what's going on? What are you guys doing? They, everybody wanted to know what was with these five orange Land Rovers. We certainly turned heads everywhere we went. Yeah, what did you we, tell them? We told them we were running from the cops. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I was uh, thinking about making up different stories every time we stopped. <laughs> it was know, a pretty like, epic like, adventure. And I have, to, I have to just jump in really quick and say, why was a Trek Defender invited along? Steve, why did you, why did you invite me to come along? This is a great question. Everyone's wondering <laughs> this. Isn't it more because the Freelander wasn't working? 
Well, there is that. Yeah. If I could have gotten the Freelander working, that would have been spectacular. But I would have probably broke down on the freeway like half an hour outside of... It'll be ready in the next 20 years, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. With an electric motor or something put into it. (laughs) We could have towed it on a trailer behind uh, the... (laughs) Can you imagine towing it through the Moki Dugway? Like a deity being brought through the streets. No, I think in the in the early discussions with Chris and Alex uh, we, and and uh, and Luke, we talked about um, do we invite other vehicles? Should we try and get some other Land Rover special vehicles involved? And I had already spoken with Steve, um, who had shown tremendous excitement, and he said, "Oh yeah, well we can bring the Camel Discovery and the Trek." And so he just ended up being. Uh, it was probably a week before we left. I think before before Eliza actually committed to. It was so, so yeah, exciting. it was, I had, yeah. I was really hoping I could do it, but there was no guarantee. Life was really crazy this spring. And of course I was at a Rebel sponsor event. One of my primary sponsors is in Florida. We were out there with my rally truck and I was speaking out there and Abigail and I flew directly from Orlando to Las Vegas to meet you all where I had left my truck and yeah, I think I, I gave you about a maybe 10 days notice to say, hey, I think I'm actually going to come with you. So Yeah, no, it, it was great. Um, it was great to have you along. And as you said, the, the five trucks looked so good uh, together. And it was good to see the 20-year advancement from, from the L322 to the, the 21 de- uh, Defender. For sure. And I, I have said this before. I think the new Defender is more karmically linked to the Range Rovers, to your Range Rovers, than it is to the old Defender. Like in terms of the interior and the features and the technology that is in the new Defender, it feels more like a Range Rover to me than it does my classic Defender. And so, you know, having it right there alongside you could see a lot of the things that have, you know, evolved over the years and made it through the entire Land Rover line. It certainly right. has a lot more luxury features like mm-hmm. you found in the earlier generations of the Range Rover and them made them distinctive, right? Then, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. But I have to say too, Liza, sort of the unspoken thought amongst the four of us driving these 20-year-old Range Rovers was that at least we knew that your vehicle would probably make it to Moab. We, we were a little <laughs> less certain about our own. And uh, Steve, Luke, Alex, and I, all of our vehicles were were prepped in advance. We all had to do a little bit of work on them to varying degrees. We all got um, check engine lights at some point. It was great. Uh, all and, of and you got them codes. on one trail in Moab. It was fantastic. Yeah. Well, and I think, Liza, you, you, you made the comment at at dinner when we arrived at Moab and seeing that it was very on brand for the fact that we were getting these check engine lights and these 20 year old Range Rovers. But I mean, the, the thing is they, they all performed spectacularly well. Uh, my son, Alex prepared both of ours, put a lot of work into it. We carried a lot of spare parts. Uh, maybe that was the uh, magic uh, talisman that ensured that we didn't have any major mechanical problems along the way. But Always great fun. And of course, there's always that element of risk and uncertainty, right? Yep. Uh, when you're driving in the Utah. Even though my car was the only one that didn't get a check engine light, that will be my car in 20 years. So don't worry. My, my dash will light up like a Christmas tree as well. So don't worry. And let's, let's think about it. You know, 20 years is actually quite a long time for a, you know, for a modern car. I mean, obviously the, the old Land Rovers that we all drive, you know, that, that 20 years is nothing, but. Yeah, for, the dash for, lights never come on on those yeah, Exactly. But <laughs> like, you turn the headlights on, right? <laughs> yeah, like, I've yeah. got a 1948 Series 1, so oh, of course cool. there are no lights whatsoever, right? Exactly. exactly. No, not really. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, your warning lights can't come on if they don't exist, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. But I think it, it is it's impressive that, you know, 20-year-old cars are, are doing it, you know? I mean, that's the thing. In this era of modern technology, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, can you imagine like a 20-year-old mobile phone? No, it yeah, really probably wouldn't be supported by the network, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, a couple of us have uh, in excess of 160,000 miles, I think, on these BMW V8s, which which are pretty high maintenance, although it is one of my favorite engines, I think. It's a great car, isn't it? That, that 322 Range Rover is a fantastic vehicle. And that really was my idea all along, was, was a celebration of the vehicle, because I knew we, we weren't going to do any kayaking or any of that. So, so. <laughs> I wanted to celebrate the vehicle and, and 
try and make it to Moab, and we did. Yeah, so on that note, so we started in Lake Las Vegas. Three of the four Range Rovers um, met at the hotel that we stayed in at the Lake Las Vegas Hilton, and Abigail and I were there. Of course, the original hotel was the Lake Las Vegas Hilton. That's right, that's right. We we, we stayed there, started taking some photos, and the hotel had a little bit of a meltdown about us staging these cars in front of a fountain. Got great oh, photos just, out of it, but the hotel was not crazy about was what that we the same did there. fountain that, that was the one where the cars were before. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we lined up the three cars that we had. We got my car in there and uh and then Luke joined us the next day. So we weren't quite fully assembled that night. But really the event didn't start for us until Saturday. And as Nick mentioned earlier, we started at the uh, Land Rover dealership in Las Vegas and a little shout out to them for hosting us. Um, and of course, listeners who tuned into the live show that morning, we had Nick, you joined Steve in talking to me out in the parking lot where we had the cars all lined up and uh, and staged them and got ready to go. And, and that was sort of the first time we assembled the whole team. We got everybody together and ready to go and then we kind of rolled out and chris acted very much like i'm not going to say our cruise director but chris you were very much our logistics guy you had figured out by looking very closely at nick's notes you had spent a lot of time prepping our itinerary and figuring out where we were going to try to get to in a day and where we were going to stay And um, you had helped pick out some really great yurts and glamping tents that we stayed in and things like that. And so, um, you know, whenever as we were as we were leaving, Chris was the guy that we would all go, Okay, where are we off to next? Well, I think you're being very generous and overstating (laughs) lies of the role I played. I mean, Steve was our spiritual leader because he's Mm -hmm. the one who connected us all together. Um, and it was in conversation with Nick and with, uh, Jerome Andre. It was Steve's idea for us to do this. In my former life, I did a lot of political advance work. So there is a, a little bit of obsessive compulsive, uh, streak in me. And when we talked about this and after Nick had provided, uh, some scans of his notes and his original map from the, the Utah topographical gazetter that uh, was marked with with his notes about the route. I think Steve plotted the first map and then that that's exactly yep. it. And and, Gazetteer. and and Nick, we we used the, the latest edition of that uh, atlas just as a, you know, the, the old school analog reference uh, when when the electronic uh, aids, you know, might have failed us. Um, so it was a it was a fascinating thing looking at Nick's notes, looking at the photographs that he had taken, uh, looking at other uh, descriptions that had come from uh, from Land Rover uh, in period and piecing this all together. But when you're talking about having multiple people who are not competing as as the original G4 challenge was, but people who are nevertheless looking forward to a fun, enjoyable drive, but when we're you have to be thinking about uh, gas stations and where to stay overnight. I mean, we we didn't set out to replicate the uh, uh, the adventures of the original competitors, but we wanted to closely follow the route and experience it. Um, Nick's information was invaluable, and it was a lot of fun. And ultimately, we came up with some different options about how we wanted to divide the you know roughly eight hundred mile route to Moab. But all I think came to the conclusion of the route. Uh, and the way we wanted to divide up the itinerary, and I'm yep. glad that we uh, we followed the um, the route as closely as we did because there was spectacular geography at every turn, microclimates, uh, you know, that would change from from one area to uh, the next area in, in short order. Just a wonderful drive. It was breathtaking. Like for any of our listeners around the world in other parts of the country who have never been to Southern Utah, you have to understand there are few things I have ever seen in my life that have left me absolutely speechless. And we saw no fewer than a dozen of those sites every single day on this trip. It was just breathtaking. The Mm. canyons, the, the mesas, the, these incredible rock formations. Sometimes you'd be up on a very flat area and you'd be kind of like looking around going, I wonder what's around here. And you wouldn't realize that you're up on top of something until you drop into a canyon and it just took your breath away. Um, 
the first day of our adventure took us to um, Snow Canyon. Okay. And that was the first sort of like major rock formations we started to see. And that was the first sort of like, oh, yeah, this is what they would have done. And this is where they would have stopped for one of their hunter challenges. And um, this was the first moment where Abigail and I got to play media team. And we found, thanks to Google Maps and Google Street View, we were able to find the exact spot, Nick, where you must have stood to take some photos in Snow Canyon of these cars. And Abigail and I like driving ahead of them, driving back behind them, trying to get, you know, trying to recreate as much of this as we could. And Abigail is a spectacular photographer and I can't wait to share some of her photos. And I know if you're going to be at Greek Peak next month, Abigail and Nick, I think we're going to try to have you guys talk a little bit about Nick's photos and Abigail's photos side by side and how we tried to recreate that. But that was really fun. And that was the first taste that we had of like, this is what it was like, and this is where Nick must have stood, and this is the shot, and There's we had a, a ton of fun. There's a plaque there now on this spot <laughs> on in this 2003, spot. <laughs> Nick Dimbleby stood. It was a really, really awesome way to start a trip. I mean, it's, it's true. that I mean, that whole – it's funny. When you look back at it, it's an, it was an amazing trip. Yeah, I mean, you guys are so, have that right on your doorstep. You know, I mean, yes. You don't have to – well, I mean, you don't have to fly anywhere, but maybe if you live on the East Coast, it might be easier. But it's um, it's uh, it's it's an incredible amount of, you know, diverse terrain, the things you can do as also yeah. the competitors with the, with the kayaking and the mountain biking, the abseiling. I mean, it's yeah. as, a, as a location to go to. Abigail and I looked it up, and Utah is 76% dedicated to public land. I believe it's 76 So – you know, most of Utah is public land that is, you know, very remote and very incredible to go and explore. And there were, it was just, it was canyon after canyon after valley after valley. It was spectacular, just beautiful. And I have to say too, Liza, that uh, Nick talked earlier about the, the team for Land Rover that plotted out this route. And of course, every stage during the 2003 G4 Challenge uh, they really did a brilliant job. They did. Um, and, and we were just the beneficiaries of being able to enjoy the spectacular totally. scenery. We had a little bit better weather, Nick, than I think you and the competitors and yes. the other sport folks had in 2003 because yeah. it was the first night uh, 20 years ago at Coral Pink Sand Dunes where they had, what, five inches of snow, I think. And, That's right. That was and, a complete and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we, we uh, on, on day two, we actually backtracked uh, maybe 20 miles to go there. I had a wonderful time. Uh, we had a blast, even though I was the one who got stuck. <laughs> yeah, we saw those things. I got a little bit stuck. I got a little bit stuck. There was some winching involved, but it's not a Land Rover adventure if you don't have to use the winch at least once, right? Right. And did I share that photo of the discovery that got stuck on the event, right? Yeah, you yeah. And I wasn't trying to replicate it. We had to winch that one out as well. Yeah, I wasn't trying to replicate it. It just, it just, it was an accident. We got a little, we got a little high centered in the sand and it took kind of the whole team to get us out, but we got out and it was a ton of fun. We had a, yeah. we had a good morning. And then from there we had a, we had a busy second day because from there we went up to Bryce Canyon and just basically hit the major lookouts at Bryce. We had like two hours to do Bryce Canyon, which like you need three days. Oh, three weeks. You could, three you could weeks. spend a long time in Bryce Canyon and not see it all. It's, it's a really amazing area. And we had and a little bit of uh, snow and sleet uh, when we were at, I think the last, um, the last place we were taking in the scenery. Yeah. Chris, yeah. Chris brought up something that I hadn't considered, which is uh, Land Rover probably paid quite a bit of money to these logistical folks to to figure all this out in 2003. And uh, you guys got the benefit of doing that for, you know, all of that research for, for, for sure. I must yeah. say, I've actually followed, I've been to, to Utah and, and uh, Arizona and Nevada quite a few times since and uh yeah i've definitely used a few of those locations again you know for my own both for photo shoots and also like personal family trips as well yeah mm. but nick now the event in 2003 i mean the competitors had they had to run against the clock essentially the support staff i know were doing all sorts of things but you as the official photographer you had to we had to scope out certain locations in advance, I imagine. And well, no, so we, we never, had, yeah, we never had any recce. We had like uh, advice from the teams that were setting up, 
Um, but of course, as I said to you before, we, we, we didn't know what the teams were going to do on the day. So at the beginning of each morning, there was a um, strategy pit, I think was the uh, the name they called it, where everyone basically had sort of half an hour to gather their thoughts and sort of work out. And of course, you know, no one wanted to show where they were going to go because, as I explained, you got a points advantage by being um, at a location before everyone else. But obviously we, so myself and another photographer, Neil Emerson, who was covering the event plus the video uh, crew, we were trying to work out where people were likely to be going. And we were also trying to persuade them to go to some of the more scenic locations. Um, and <laughs> on, on that, on that uh, stage, it was fine. But I remember on the first stage, I went and hiked for a, an hour to go to a, um, this incredible rocky outcrop that literally one team came to on that on that day. So I spent oh, no. a whole day just basically waiting. Um, so uh, it was it was you know it was a there was a bit of jeopardy for us as well. We had to plan as much you know by talking to the teams. And of course, sometimes you talk to them and they'd say, "Oh, we're definitely going here." But then when they were en route, they worked out that another team was going to go there first. So they then scrapped their plans. So I mean, we were we were sort of sort of sailing a little bit by the seat of our pants as well. So, uh, yeah, it was quite it was quite fun, but um, it was we managed to get some pictures at least. And if, if not, you might see on some of those shots, there's actually pictures of freelanders quite a lot. And that was basically, if we were at a scenic location and no one else was there, we just photographed our own car. <laughs> That's that. convenient that you were pr exactly. provided with a car that matched really? the event cars. You'd be like, mm. Abigail was sitting in my passenger seat and was frequently like pulling up Nick's Dropbox of photos and like trying to trying to see like, okay, well, they must have taken this here and they must have taken this. This is this is in this folder for day three. So they must have been here. And she was trying to analyze like where we could try to capture something really, really similar to what you had done, Nick, and try to figure out, you know, where you guys had been. And um, she and I had a blast busting ahead of these guys and then trying to like capture them driving across a bridge or driving through a canyon with their lights on. You would have been really proud of us. That's good. I'm looking forward to seeing them. And I yeah. also, did you did you find, because this is something that I think is quite funny, sometimes if um, if I'm actually retracing some pictures that I've taken previously, you'll find that the location may have been like a little pull-in or there's like a convenient place that you can stop the vehicle and get out. So you probably yeah, found those. That was what we did uh, was we often looked on Google to see if there was like an outlook or an overlook or a pull-off because we figured you weren't going to stop dead in the middle of the road. You were going to find somewhere safe to pull over. So we would yeah. go into Google and look that up and we'd be like, oh, he must have. Like we did this for the Moki Dugway. We figured out where you must have been standing based on Google images. We figured out where you must have taken that photograph. And by the time we got to the Moki Dugway, we were at a completely different time of day than you were, obviously, because your photos, they're entirely in sunshine. And our photos, they're in and out of shadows constantly. But it was just the time of day that we were there. There was no way around it. But then that takes us to day three. And I think it is safe to say that day three was everyone's favorite. Day three was the Burr Trail and the Moki Dugway and the Valley of the Gods and then ending in uh, Bluff, right? That's correct. And on the way down, uh, well, as we traveled the Burr Trail, uh, we landed at Bullfrog. That's right. Um, but Nick, you, you, you would not recognize it today. You know, mm -mm. Lake Powell, I think, is 100, 120 feet below the level that you probably saw it at 20 years ago. So I think where we uh, stopped for a sort of impromptu lunch, I think where we ended up stopping was probably would have been about 50 to 70 feet underwater when you were there, Nick, 20 years ago. Amazing. And then there's a, a ferry, wasn't there, as well, that we took, which I think is no longer running. Is that right? No longer running. That is running. correct. It would be impossible for a ferry to run that way. So Yeah, it is just way too shallow. There was fish. There was carp jumping out of the water when we were there. But, Chris, you said to me that day, um, at, when we were about three-quarters of the way through the Burr Trail, you said... Whoever designed this trail was a genius. And it's true. This Burr Trail that runs, you know, you kind of pick it up just outside of Escalante. And it, at the time that you did it, Nick, it was like 76 miles of unpaved dirt road. That's right. When we did it, there was only about 
12 miles that was unpaved and it just happened to be the burst switchbacks and the area leading into the burst switchbacks and out of it. Everything else was paved and very well paved. But what a spectacular trail that was. It was just gorgeous from start to finish. And then from there, we continued on and met up with the Moki Dugway, which is yet another breathtaking trail and more switchbacks that were absolutely stunning. Day three was the best day by far. It was so gorgeous. It was the longest day, but it was absolutely, as you said, Liza, it was worth the entire effort just yeah. for what we experienced. Yeah, for sure. As well, I remember when we when we did it, I remember Neil and I, um, Neil being the other photographer, we, we were both sort of saying, wow, this is by far the best bit. But as I said to you before, we, we were actually, because everyone was in such a hurry to get onto their next location, we actually, you know, we would have, you know, like maybe two or three uh, like groups of cars that would be absolutely, you know, heading heading past us at high speed whereas you, know, you sort of want to sort of be right just uh let's let's do a shot here and then we'll get you to turn around and come back towards us so the lights are the right way and lights on and everything else but that wasn't that wasn't the case so yeah neil and i basically felt quite frustrated that day because we we had all these amazing places to take shots but all we had was our two freelanders did you do aerial photography that day nick no 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 so obviously there was no no drones then back in the day um and i don't think there was no there was no event helicopter either so yeah there was no aerial stuff at all they didn't even have ladders back then exactly yeah the the highest we got was on the roof rack we definitely stood on our roof racks and took some photos in a couple of key places that's for sure Nick, 20 years ago do, do you think the competitors were able to look up, you know, from their maps or, or turn from their windshields and uh, appreciate the, the scenery that they were quickly passing by? Or were they so focused on the competition itself that uh, maybe more for you as a photographer, you, you appreciated the... the yeah, I think um, I think that was one of the things that was was quite tough for the competitors because obviously they, you know, if they were totally focused on on the competition, that actually, you know, it was very much head down and... Yeah. Yeah, you're you're doing the activity, but you're not necessarily taking time. I mean, a lot of them did, but I remember. Uh, I mean, this is not this trip, but I remember being on a Camel Trophy in 1998, following the French team, and uh, it was the French and South Africans that were basically head to head at this point, and they were both on the same point. So whoever won that stage was going to win the competition. Um, and I remember going past the Peritoro Moreno Glacier in in um, Argentina, down in the, the far south. And yeah, it was literally like a, I don't know, maybe a 15, 20 minute detour to go and see it. And I was keen that we were going to go and see it. Anyway, the the, uh, the team was like, no, no, we haven't got time for that. We're on the competition and uh, that's it. We drove straight by. Oh. So, uh, so yeah. I will say on the Rebel Rally, I had a similar feeling as a competitor because as the navigator, especially in a helmet, my but, head was uh, down. All Every photo we have of our team, my head is down in the map. I'm not looking out the window at all. And, you know, I flagged all these places that were breathtaking that I want to go back to and explore on my own, because when you're in the competition, you you have to keep jamming forward and you have a really hard time with, you know, you, you have you have five seconds to take in the scenery and then you got to go. That resonates very deeply yes. with me. <clears throat> I think that's a fair. Yeah. So uh, uh, now you've taken you're talking about all these beautiful places and all these beautiful photos that you've taken uh are we gonna post those up are we gonna see those are those gonna be in an article what's how can people they are so we've been really um we've been holding back on abigail's photos because abigail is a professional photographer and she has taken some absolutely breathtaking stuff and then again if you're coming to greek peak abigail and nick are going to talk about it and go through some of her stuff and we'll start putting some more um uh images on our uh social media platforms And then I'm working on, I was taking video the whole time that we were out there and I was filming sort of a video diary while we were out there. And I'm going to try to get that onto YouTube in the next month or so and be able to share some of Abigail's photography. So we're doing it slowly. We're, we're, we're parsing it out. We, we filmed a lot of content and we're going to, we're going to really stretch it out as long as we can. Very cool. Very cool. I can't wait to see all that. Yeah. So what was the, the last day was was because that was the penultimate day, was it? the? Yeah, that was day, day three for us was our penultimate day. And then day four 
was, you know, a short day in terms of getting to Moab. We really didn't have very far to go at all. We stopped um, at Looking Glass Rock, which I think you guys did like a repelling challenge or something at back in the day. That was one of my favorites, actually, that one was... they did a, I think it was, yeah, rappel off the, um, or abseil, as we would say, uh, down the um, the middle. And then obviously we did some pictures with the teams in that that sort of iconic looking glass shape uh, opening that's that's on the side. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, because that's, that's not a really well-known location, I don't think. I mean, I know it's it's you know part of the tourist trail but i don't think it's visited by a lot of people i don't think it is as popular as say arches or you know exactly. further up north in really moab a little bit of a hidden secret really that i quite, i we, we went there i was in um utah on a, a family drive trip um uh, a couple of years ago and and we we went there and visited that it was one of our sort of one of our highlights yeah it was beautiful we got a good team photo there in front of looking glass as well trying to uh trying to emulate what you guys had done. And then from there, we, we went into Moab and had lunch. And then Alex and I researched a trail and thought, we're going to pick something really easy. We're going to go, we're going to drive for a few hours this afternoon, and then we'll all head to our hotels and we'll go meet up for dinner. And Alex and I picked what we thought was going to be a pretty easy trail, which ultimately it wasn't that it was really aggressive, but it was very dramatic. The beginning of this trail was kind of like right up along the Moab fault line. We went up to, um, it was called Gemini Bridges Trail. Oh, oh yeah. That's a great trail. It's a beautiful trail. Very but cool. we didn't anticipate that the beginning of the trail was going to be really steep, really rocky, and right alongside a cliff. And so some members of our group were a little nervous. Uh, Abigail could not look out the windshield for a little while. She was a little freaked out. Uh, by it but um but all five of us you know driving up into this trail it was beautiful we it, that ended up being such a fun afternoon gemini bridges is cool i've uh, done that on a motorcycle and there's a, a land rover connection there as well because a lot of so i've been to moab uh with the engineering teams because they do a lot of their slick rock uh testing there and also part of the durability is they actually do drive that gemini bridges trail so um, I would say most of the prototypes that come to the Moab area with Land Rover will have done that. So um, I've said I photographed, but I photographed the um, uh, 405 Range Rover in prototype camo um, along that trail. Uh, I would like to tell you that's why we chose it and that we had like we knew that all along, but yes, we didn't. Alex and I just randomly yeah. chose something from on X and thought this looks good and decided to go for it. Fantastic. And then we ended our trip at just the most beautiful sunset at uh, Red Cliffs Lodge, which is where we understand you guys ended your journey as well 20 years ago. Yeah, we had a hell of a party there, as you can might imagine. Oh, I would the- say we didn't necessarily party that hard. We had a really lovely dinner. We took gorgeous photos of the cars one last time. And uh, yeah, it was that was that was the final hotel for the um, for all of us basically? Yes, yeah. so I think all the all the teams, all the support crew, the videographers, the photographers, we took the whole place over. So um, mm. that was like an award ceremony. And uh, yeah, of course, Rudy Tulin from Belgium won his Range Rover. Although he actually didn't take the prize of Range Rover. Again. No, he took the two Defenders, right? Uh, two Defenders instead. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. So uh, and he now has a very successful. Um, four by four business um, in um, in Belgium. So oh, that's he, awesome. He was a he was a recently retired fighter pilot. So wow. he had the, he had the uh, logistic logistical brain to win. Obviously, and the physical. Um, yeah, he was obviously very very fit. But um, I think the reason he won was because he had that ability to process lots of information and make very quick split second decisions. And that was one of the reasons why I think he won the competition. So um, yeah, he did well. That's awesome. Initially, we we all wanted to stay there, but by the time we we decided it was going to happen and tried to book, it was booked up. So um, I actually stayed in town at the Gonzo Inn, which was very cool. This little boutique motel type, which was actually uh, very convenient because it's right across the street from Napa Auto Parts, where I had to <laughs> which go you and- needed, right? which I needed. I'd been misfiring like uh, crazy for three days, but managing to rev around the misfire, of course, this kept reoccurring. So, <laughs> But yeah, you, 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 you kind of have to know the vehicle when it's that old and, and be a little handy. 
But they were, I mean, they were comfortable cars. I, I was, I mean, I'm guessing you're still all on your air suspension and uh, yeah. Yeah, I think if they're well maintained, I mean that's the thing. It's a it's a mm -hmm. bit of a sort of a misconception that air suspension is really unreliable. And I think I mean all the trips that I've done in in modern Landra products, you know the the air suspension. I've never I think we had like one one bag issue, which on like you know literally you know fifty or sixty trips with cars with air suspension, and and that was well, it was driver abuse you know driver because right. the the air suspension seems to work i don't know if you guys are going to agree with me there but i mean um it tends i think to most play. most vehicles that have air suspension that i've been on trips with uh have had some sort of issue with the air suspension but uh that, maybe you're a bad luck charm Ike. Well, it's, that's I think probably true that's probably true <laughs> but you know in addition to the bags themselves which age just like a tire you know they're rubber you know, they need to be replaced on a periodic basis. And by yeah. the time they're a decade or 20 years old, like it's not uncommon for those to have leaks. It's uh, there's the software element of it, too. And sometimes they, you know, want to misbehave or act up. But mm. uh, I think it's common. People don't want to do the maintenance that you said, you know, well-maintained system probably doesn't have any faults. But Sleep. you know, people uh, get a car that's had a lot of deferred maintenance and then they're like, oh, well, I. I need to spend, you know, $5,000 or something upgrading all these components that are aged, or I could put coil springs on it for a fraction of that. What am I going to do? And, and a lot of people just go the coil sprung route. But sure. I think you're right. You know, it, it, it is a simple system in theory. It just, uh, you know, doesn't get maintained. And the cars that started with these systems are two decades old. And so you mm -hmm. are going to have some faults with those. Whereas like a leaf spring, probably not going to, probably not going to fail spectacularly you know even if it's 50 years old it's not going to fail uh, in a way that prevents you from driving the car yeah there is there is that but i think your point is is very valid about the fact that you know effectively it's you you wouldn't drive with with 20 year old tires no so you, wouldn't, you wouldn't drive quickly with 20 year old tires yeah well this sounds like a very exciting adventure and uh i was sorry to miss it i know jenna was thinking about uh, participating in nick uh, as well and so i'm sure there's some some fomoing uh feeling of missing out uh that uh happened about uh, not being able to participate but uh hopefully we can see all of the wonderful photographs that you guys took and uh we just you have know, to do it again, I think. We'll just have to recreate that, the that 25th up a good anniversary. Point. Yeah, is there is there a plan to do a next one, uh, you know, in 10 years? Five or even years. five, Steve, right? Two years. When? Maybe. Next week. Two years I don't next know. week. Yeah. We'll see. Steve will be reaching out to us probably in four and a half years and asking if we want to do it again and bring well, some more friends. It's certainly a part of the country that I uh, really enjoy spending time in and use uh, so many backcountry opportunities to explore there. You could spend, you know, probably the rest of your life, honestly. Now, it's not an exaggeration, exploring all no, the totally trails right. and, you know, all the rivers and canyons and wonderful I'll make places. you a deal, guys. If, if uh, Steve, if you reach out to us in about four, four and a half years, Nick... I will have a G4 edition Freelander in running order for you to drive and you can come yeah, join us. Yeah. Does that and sound think, like a deal? No sounds, one believes that. I think, and I think Mike, you need to get one as well, right? Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> you have, have the only two running Freelanders in the entire USA. Perfect. It may not have anything original in it by then, but that's okay. Yeah. It'll be a G4 edition Freelander. I, love, I, think, I, I think it really is fantastic, that, that, that car, because, I mean, it's, it's so rare. You know, now in the in the U.S., right? So yeah. rare, <laughs> very rare. So the rare. The unicorn. Yeah. Well, in until that happens, until that time, I really appreciate all of you uh, participating in the, uh, you know, reminiscing about uh, the the original event and uh, this current one. So uh, thanks again for taking the time, and uh, look for forward to us. seeing you on the trail. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, man. Well, that was a that was a whirlwind trip and uh, quite an interesting discussion about uh, what happened and where you guys went. And uh, I was uh, I was excited to hear all about that. And uh, it sounds like there may be another one in the future. And oh, uh, I'd go back in a heartbeat. I'm already talking to Stephen about how soon till we could like buy a piece of property in Utah and maybe like semi retire up there. There's some really gorgeous areas of Utah. It's just like it's hard to explain how uh, amazing it is. 
But uh, until that time, until mm-hmm. that time, we've got so many things happening here at the podcast. We've got uh, this episode, which is, uh, this follows on the back of the two Australia episodes. That's right. And then we've got Greek Peak coming up here shortly. Just in a few weeks. And you guys are going to be, you guys are going to be busy, busy at Greek Peak. They have you guys booked doing a ton of stuff. I don't even understand what I have signed up for I think you're just there. along for the ride. I think Stephen and Abigail will just tell you where to be and when. That's what I need. I need a handler. Yeah, yeah. It'll be good. It'll be good. And and you guys will, you guys will get up to all sorts of Land Rovering shenanigans. And uh, Jenna and I are going to go do some training in the desert. And we're never all going to be in the same place at the same time ever because there's just too many too many places to be. There's too many obligations. But uh, we'll we'll keep a tab on all of that for our listeners. And so mm-hmm. we'll discuss it here on the podcast. It'll be on. Uh, Instagram, it'll be on Patreon, it will be in all the places. YouTube. YouTube, so don't forget to uh, check those out. And uh, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you need a tiny notebook, a tiny underpowered hour notebook. Or to a tiny Ike sticker. We keep track of it all. Stickers. I need a notebook to keep track of it all. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's going to be great. So I'm looking forward to seeing you there and uh, chatting with you about it. You are going to Greek Peak, correct? I'm not going. What? I got it. Somebody what? has to stay home and mother our child who has oh, swim meets that weekend. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. That is a big responsibility. So this is this is the, you know, we can't all be everywhere at once. I did Utah. Steven's yeah. going to do Greek Peak. We couldn't both do so the you same alternate. one. But then he and I are going to go to Scotland this summer and we're going to drive our uh, Puma Defender around. Car. We're going to drive that one around what? Scotland for two weeks. So that's, that's going to be incredible. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that, too. I know, right? We'll have another trip and more adventures to recap on. When's it all going to end? We can never stop doing these kinds of things. Otherwise, we'll have nothing for us to talk about on the podcast. No, no. We we don't relate as people if you're (laughs) not doing all these crazy things. So, well, uh, until that time. Hey, thanks for letting me fill in for Steve today. Oh, yeah. You did a wonderful job. I am looking forward to discussing a permanent transition. So uh, Perfect. Uh, I mean, I'm not as sarcastic that. and sardonic as him, but I'm a little bit better looking. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah, I think it's a great I think it's a great exchange. All well, right. thanks for having me. We'll uh, we'll catch you out there. Talk to you soon. The Underpowered Hour is produced by Liza Barris, Ike Goss, and me, Steve Barris. Pavel Svartov composed and performed our theme music. Consider supporting the show on Patreon, and if you already do, thank you. Your support makes the show possible. For even more, check out our Instagram or Facebook.